All right, church, let's stand. Say this verse together. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Let's sing together. Casting my cares aside. I'm casting my cares aside. I'm leaving my past that we used last week because I just can't get enough of this verse. Let's say it together. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. 
Are you finding that, that there, are, there are songs, there are phrases in songs, there are scriptures that are just popping to life right now? I, I mean, things like we just sang, um, you know, I, I'm giving you my fears. Lord, I'm giving you my fears. Now, in a regular week, th- four months ago, what did that mean? You know, it, it has meaning now. And, uh, and and you you know that and so so you know if, if this has taught us anything it's it's that we can trust the Lord His word is absolutely perfect and true Amen so let's uh, let's bow in prayer Lord God we just come before you now and we uh, we just give you all glory and honor and praise we know this is the day you've made and uh, Lord we claim Romans eight twenty eight if we love you if we're called according to your purpose uh, Lord uh, that you will provide for us that that you will work all things for our good, even in a, in a chaotic time. And even in a time where all we can say is, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And uh, Lord, help us all to have uh, that attitude as we, as we move forward in, in these difficult days. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll speak. Go ahead and be seated in, in, in the, as we talk about. Oh, by the way, uh, if you're watching live stream, we apologize. I think I misformatted our words, and so you're not going to be able to see the, the, um, the lyrics. I apologize. We will have that fixed for next, next week. Um, as we talk about God's provision, Fanny Crosby gives us a great, great hymn that we're going to sing now. All the way, my Savior leads me. Let's sing it together. All the way, my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercies? But through life has been my guide. Heavenly peace behind His comfort. Here by faith in Him to dwell. For I know what here befall me. Jesus doeth all things well. For I know Jesus doeth all things well, and all the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me ways for every trial, leads me with a living bread. Though my weary steps may falter, and my soul a thirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, though a spring of joy I see. Rushing from the rock before me, though a spring of joy I see. And praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Jesus the Son. 
that song remind us of? We come to the Father through who? Jesus. As we study Ruth, we see a character by the name of Boaz. And Boaz is that Old Testament picture of the Redeemer. Amen? And we know our Redeemer is, say his name again, Jesus. Who has the power to raise the dead? Who can save us from our sins? He is our hope, our righteousness, Jesus, only Jesus. Oh, who can make the blind to see, who holds the keys that set us free? He paid it all to bring us peace, Jesus. command the highest praise. Give him our highest 
I heard that song uh, coming out of David's office blaring through my wall this week. And I was like, oh, we're doing that one this Sunday. And I don't know if your plan was to do this one this Sunday, but what a song. I love that one. I was having revival sitting in my office listening to that incredible song. Well, uh, our graduates, this is not uh, the 2020 you thought it would be in regard to walking uh, out on the football field or in a high school gym or wherever that might be or college campuses. But we do say congratulations to you. And to graduate means to take a step. And we pray that there are many steps in the future that you will take, always remembering that the Lord our God guides our steps. Uh, we make our plans. God guides our steps. And we belong to him. So we are certainly praying for you and what God leads you to do. Matthew 1, verse 5. Some of you are kind of dumbfounded. But I'm going to Ruth. But just listen to Matthew 1, verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, a journalist would tell you that names are news. Uh, and the greater the names, the greater the news. Now, there is no better news than the end of Matthew's genealogy when it points to Christ. And it says, and Jesus, born of Joseph and Mary, of course. And there's no greater name than that one. But just look at the name Ruth on the page. And just think about how God Almighty orchestrated all things, working through the lives of ordinary people, and placing Ruth in his very genealogy. Amazing. That's the amazing grace of God. And so the title of the sermon is Astonished or Astounded. Either word works great. I looked these up in the dictionary. Uh, the only thing that astounded adds is that you are very greatly surprised. Instead of being greatly surprised, you are very greatly. And we should all be astounded by the grace of Almighty God. Well, the book of Ruth, again, is about the providential grace of God at work in the lives of his people. But it's also about how that our God has worked in you and for you by grace if you belong to him. Paul would remind us of this in his sermon on Mars Hill. If you remember back when we preached through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17, verses 25 through 26, I'm, I'm giving you this verse so that we give God all the credit. Okay, that's what I'm trying to get you to see. How God works in the lives of ordinary people is an amazing thing. We talked about the doctrine of concurrence last week, wherein God is working through our actions and decisions in such a way when you act or decide, God is acting and deciding. It's an amazing thing to know how sovereign God is. But here's what he reminds the people who are listening to the gospel at Mars Hill. He says this, God is not served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Notice that, underscore, everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Listen to this. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. What an amazing set of scriptures. Even Ruth, her boundaries were determined. Her allotment of time when she lived. How God was working 
in and through all the details in order to accomplish his purpose. Therefore, we can't just look at the Lord and say, well, you know what, sovereign Lord, you actually uh, need to put me to work because you need me. We, we can't have that uh, attitude when it comes to our God because why? Because he is the very one who gives us breath and life and everything. So we can't have an attitude that we are so needed by the Lord. As a matter of fact, he's not served by human hands in such a way that he needed anything. Right? So it's a blessing to be in his service. And in the book of Ruth, it teaches us. You remember JFK said, it's not what your country can do for, but what you can do for your country? Well, that's not good theology. When it comes to the Bible, folks, it all begins with what God does for you. It all begins, grace begins with God. For by grace are we saved through faith. That not of ourselves is a gift of God, not of works. Now, if you are saved, according to the, uh, the book of James, then you certainly ought to work. But not in order to get your salvation. It's a product of being saved. You can read through the book of Ruth at a leisurely pace in 15 to 20 minutes. Doesn't take long, four short chapters. But I told you when we started, it was, it was powerfully packed with incredible teaching. I hope you remember what happened so far. A family moves to Moab to a neighboring country. And they move in the times, in the days of a famine of which God was in control of. And then they also moved in the days of probably uh, the worst political, spiritual, and moral climate in Israel's history. It was the time of the judges. Now, I don't know if you've watched TV lately, but I kind of feel like our country's like this, right? Who in the world can you believe in our country? So, we know that it was the very hand of God that was controlling the times. And then successive deaths, Elimelech, Malon, Kilion. And you know that Ruth and Naomi both learned that God even controls death. However, our God is not mean and our God is not capricious. He's simply working out all things according to the counsel of his will. Even the dark, frowning providences that come upon your life, our God is in control of those as well. Naomi acknowledges the hand of God that it had stretched out against her, and she does so with a determined and honest faith before the Lord. And in the book of Ruth, uh, God's purposes are multifaceted. Uh, it would be enough for me just to look at Ruth's name in the genealogy of Christ and say, Oh, Lord, your amazing sovereign grace is amazing. But also to add to that, that she's going to be the grandfather of King David. And then she's going to be in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing story. But also just the story of the fact that God redeems her heart. That when we, in chapter 1, it says, she says to Naomi, your God, my God. So we rejoice with a Moabitess girl who comes to faith in the true and living God, and she becomes a follower of the Lord. Naomi's God becomes her God. And then we've learned that there are always obstacles of faith. But our God fortifies our faith in such a way where his people overcome those obstacles led by his hand. Last week we witnessed the beginning of the bright and smiling providences upon the lives of Naomi and Ruth. God was again arranging the furniture in such a way that every detail in their life was the Lord working through their decisions and their works. God works 
in and through human decisions and actions in order to accomplish his purpose. Why? So that we will trust him more. And as that song we just sang, so that you will give him higher praise. That's the reason he does these things. As chapter 2 continues, God is bringing Naomi and Ruth into his provision by grace. And when I read this, I think to myself, this is just grace piled up higher on grace. It's one grace after another grace, just piled one time above the other. And remember, what does Boaz say to her in the middle of chapter 2? You have sought refuge under the mighty wings of the Lord God. And when you seek refuge there, here's the Lord God working out his plan for you under his mighty wings, under his refuge is where Ruth is. So let's read, beginning in verse 14, down through the remainder of chapter 2. Some of you are thinking, this pastor actually preached the book of Ruth, two chapters, right? And we're moving right along. Usually it would take us a long time, right? We just really have three more sermons, one in chapter 3 and then two for chapter 4. Okay, let's read together, beginning in verse 14. And at mealtime, that's a chronological key in the Hebrew to tell you there's been a little bit of time that's elapsed. Okay, And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, or harvesters, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Underscore that. It's going to become important toward the end of the chapter. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Here's some grace piled on grace. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. When's the last time you sent your bride to the grocery store and said, hey, please bring back an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Now, the word of God is powerful. There's some drama there. You can't read this like, oh, you just came back from the grocery store, or you just came back from Goodwill, and you had a good day. Some of you ladies, you go to Goodwill, right? Don't act so spiritual on me. I know you women do. But here's the deal. She took what she had up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Back in the south, we'd call this a doggy bag. What do y'all call it? And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where did you glean today? Would be better off. And successive two quick-hitting questions. And where have you worked? Same question. She's giddy. She's excited. And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, and adds, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. 
And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Here's a great, wonderful exclamation point in verse 23. Think where our narrative has gone from the beginning to the end. Here it is. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Y'all ready to unpack this? It's good stuff. First, we are witnesses of God's abounding grace and provision for his people. You see this in verses 14 through 18. Now again, clearly see that God is at work doing his part. But the people of God are not idle. The people of God are engaged. They're doing what God is leading them to do as people. Now think about this. Here is Boaz who is a grace-saturated man like none we've probably ever met. But here's also Ruth in the interchanges with him, always exemplifying what? Humility, which is absolutely amazing to look at her life as God is accomplishing his purposes. Here you see God at work. In other words, this is not just a story about Boaz trying to help a little foreign girl, right? God is at work. Is it enough for you to read Matthew 1, 5 to think about that God is at work here? There's so much more going on than just kindness. Boaz is extending grace to Ruth, but he's doing so, being led by the Lord God to do so. So God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Is there not a lesson we can learn there uh, looking at Ruth's humility before God? God extends grace to those who are humble. So here we have, we witness the manifold grace of God at work. We're witnessing it right before our eyes. And I say witness so that not only do you see it in the text, but we're witnesses in our own lives of the manifold grace of God. Number one, you would not be in this service. You would not be saved and in this service today were it not for grace. Right? But that's not all. Because the Bible tells us there's accepting grace and sustaining grace and restraining grace. Uh, stick to there's fortitude, there's grace that God gives you and sustains you with every single day. So here's this phrase, here at the time of eating signals a chronological separation between verses 13 and 14. So in other words, think about Boaz's first speech and Ruth's response still in your mind. You have to read back to get that. And now the reader discovers that Boaz has not yet exhausted all of his grace and compassion that he has for this foreign girl. Thus he does what? He invites her to dine with him. Now folks, uh, do you know what, what this would have looked like during this time frame to invite a foreign girl to dine with you? This is an amazing, uh, you should get an understanding of grace here. Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. More than likely this was a concoction of some things like we would eat, that um, you would just put it in this uh, tonic or whatever it is and dip your bread in there so it's not as dry, but it's moist. It was put together, and that's kind of what scholars say about it, some kind of sour sauce of sorts to moisten and to spice up the bread. But here's the deal. He invites her to do this. Now, again, back to the book of Acts. Do you recall the story in Acts 10? Where Peter is kind of dazed, He's in a vi- he, he sees this vision and there's a large net coming down from 
heaven and he sees it and it's filled with a lot of unclean animals. And the Lord says to Peter, you're going to go with this Gentile who's coming to greet you. You go with them and you eat with them. And what was Peter's response? Go ahead and dip your morsel of bread. No, that wasn't his response. It was like, no way. I've never eaten with anybody unclean and I'm not going to start now. But you know the rest of the story, right? God begins to work. Well, just think about this. Here is a, an Israelite of Israelites, Boaz, who knows the law. And look how he's accepting grace, accepting Ruth into his inner circle. Now, eating a meal back then meant more than it means today. Now, most of the time, our attitude is, I'm hungry, let's eat. And we eat to satisfy our hunger. However, in the Bible, eating a meal together carries a much more symbolic significance. I know uh, Brother Dale would know this. When you've been a missionary, you've gone overseas, wherever you are, uh, in any country, it means something the way you receive the food and how you are when you have a meal. But just to give you a couple of things, Genesis 18 presents a meal as an expression of hospitality. There are uh, celebratory occasions in Psalm 23, 5, Matthew 22, 1 through 14, Luke 12 through 36. That's more celebratory. And, but then there's times when the meal actually climaxes a treaty of covenantal means that people have together. They're coming together with a covenantal meal. And then there are religious groups that meet over meals. And then, of course, there are people who ate and drank together just to have a good time. Isaiah 21.5 and Amos 6.7. My point is, there were a lot more ramifications with eating a meal together then than there are now. There's no question about it. Now, we, I'm not saying there shouldn't be today, right? We should be hospitable in this way. But you open yourself up in order to share food with someone. So let's, ca let's call some of these things by grace. This is what's called accepting grace. Here is Boaz accepting Ruth. Now I want to remind you of something. God can save anybody, anywhere, anytime, any place in this world, any race. It's not about race, it's about grace. Right? So here we have an understanding, even in the Old Testament, of how our God was going to work when it comes to evangelism. When it comes to people being saved, the fact that God can save anyone, it's not about race, it's about grace. And here we see him pulled into, her inner, into his inner circle. And he would not even let her eat old dry bread. Uh, he made sure that she ate what they ate. And dip it, not only uh, do you have some of this sauce, but dip it into the same one we're dipping it into. I mean, folks... For Israelites in Paul's day, when he's preaching the gospel, to look back on this, I mean, you wonder why Paul didn't bring this one up, right? <laughs> At some point, to those who listened that were the Pharisees and Sadducees. But here is accepting grace. And then the Bible says she has taken her seat with Boaz's harvesters. And then the Bible says he serves her roasted grain. The writer's going to highlight this with a, with a word that's not used anywhere else in the whole entire Old Testament. In other words, the, the narrator wants you to think about this. This is an extraordinary event. Now think about it. How many times in the scripture do you see a landowner serving anyone food? I, I don't know. I didn't go through the, tech, the whole Bible, but I don't know of many, right? Or if any. Needless to say, let's say that Boaz was serving his men who worked. We say, ah. 
It's pretty incredible that you own a field and you're going to serve the men. To serve the women, Israelite women, wow, extraordinary. But to serve a foreign woman, this is staggering. This is grace. So we would say not only is there accepting grace, but there is serving grace. Here is one act of grace upon another. Notice she ate and she was satisfied and she had some left. Before this occasion, at the beginning of chapter 2, Ruth did not know where her next meal was coming from. Now catch this, folks. In your own life, can you think back at the times when maybe you didn't know how things were going to work out? Whether it was your marriage mate, or your job, or your, a decision you had made, and, and maybe even you were in the place that you didn't know where your next meal was coming from. That's highly possible. But now she eats until she's satisfied. Folks, that's called grace. She didn't know where the next meal was coming from. But now she eats and she's satisfied. No small blessing when you consider that the real prospect for someone husbandless and penniless is that they could easily starve to death. But Boaz makes sure she has enough to eat. I call this satisfying grace. So we have accepting and serving grace. And satisfying. In verse 15 she finishes her meal and she starts to go back to work. And at this point we see abundant grace. Let her glean among the sheaves. Where she, let her glee, glean among the sheaves. Where was Ruth supposed to be? In the corners and perhaps maybe coming behind if something is dropped and forgotten. But now she's gleaning among the sheaves. In other words, if that's not enough purposefully drop some on the ground so that she can pick it up so it's easy for her and then he gives those two understandings of uh, how they should treat her let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her and then at the end of verse 16 and also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her think about this abundant grace you're not to reproach her and you're not to rebuke her to be a foreign woman to be a widow is one thing, uh, to be poor, uh, and knowing you had to glean. Just think about some of the cat calls you could get out there in the fields when you were poor. Ratchet that up by saying you're a foreigner. And it would have been very easy for her to have been treated, for her to be, have been treated wrongly. But Boaz gives abundant grace. Boaz is going all out for this girl with loving kindness. And think about this. At this point, there's nothing ever mentioned about romance at all. It's just a grace-saturated man reaching out to a foreign girl. Uh, he takes an ordinary occasion and he transforms that occasion into a glorious demonstration of acceptance, compassion, and generosity. The wings of Yahweh God are not only for the Israelites. Are y'all listening? But they're also for the Moabites. They're also for the Americans. Right? And everyone else in the world. Verse 17 reveals to us what happened at the end of the day. She gleaned until evening. When it's all said and done, she had an ephah of barley. Now, folks, get the picture here. She's gathered sheaves all day long. And she's piled them up. And she proceeds to beat out the kernels from the husk. And when she is done, the reward of grace is so abundant that she has an ephah of barley. Now, if you study this, 
uh, the scholars will debate about what an ephah is compared to other things and how much you have there. One scholar said this could be as much as 47 pounds. Others say a minimum of 30 pounds of grain. Gleaners, by the way, only received enough normally in a day to be able to feed themselves that night and perhaps the next morning. And here is Ruth at the end of the day with an ephah of barley that would have fed her family two to three weeks. That super abundant grace. God is working. In their welfare system, uh, a good day gleaning wouldn't give you much. But when God was at work, uh, an ephah of barley was the result of grace. That's staggering. Ruth goes home with at least a half month's worth of grain. She reaps the reward of Boaz's extraordinary grace. We are witnesses of that. If you can't see grace in that text, then you don't have eyes to see grace. Amazing grace. Acceptance. Serving. This is the grace of God at work. Second, we should respond by celebrating the grace of God. Beginning in verse 18, and she took it up and went into the city. Again, uh, you, you got to think about this. High drama, right? Don't just bump over this and read. Just think about what this would have meant. This interaction is heartwarming, but it's also humorous. Now, can you imagine Ruth carrying 30 to 50 pounds? Now, we think that's a lot until you've gone over to Guatemala and you see women carrying 70 and 80 pounds on top of their heads. But still, physically speaking, <clears throat> to walk back with 30 to 50 pounds of grain was no small task. And I could see her carrying it, and instead of knocking on the door or trying to get in, she may have bumped on it with her feet. You ever done that four ladies carrying in the groceries when that slug's in the house and he won't come out and help you? <coughs> no. But yet we think about that, and she's trying to get in the door. Uh, or maybe that was perhaps, using your imagination, what was going on. But Naomi puts her eyes on the amount of grain, and she's stunned. And if that's not enough, Ruth pulls out a doggy bag, grace upon grace, and presents it to Naomi. And if you go back to where we started in verse 14, you'll notice that not only did she eat and was satisfied, but she had some left over. Do you think Naomi's mouth is gaping open at this point? When this, when this all started, they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. The prayer was, may you find favor in someone's sight. May, may someone look at you and put you in a field, or not mind that you're actually gleaning. Well, again, she takes this food to her mother-in-law. And think about Naomi. She's at home all day. She knows that gleaning is tough for someone to survive if it's just one person. Nonetheless, two and here she has two to three weeks worth of grain. If that's not enough grace, Ruth brought her a carryout plate and gave it to her. Amazing. Notice how Naomi responds. She asks two rapid-fire questions that are the same question. She's excited. She's astonished. And where in the world did you work today? Before Ruth can ever get out an answer, Naomi puts a blessing on the man. And she doesn't even know who he is. But this is what I want you to know. She realizes that she is in the orbit of the glorious providence of God. She begins to see 
that uh, where she said God has stretched out his hand against me, there's a movement in the text to her understanding that God is working for her good and for his glory. And so Naomi knows that God's glorious providence stands behind all of this. And it's the hand of God. The drama's mounting. And Ruth says, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Do you think the light is going on in Naomi's mind? She's a good Jewish woman, but the wheels are turning. Right? She's thinking about this name, Boaz. And she not only praises the man for his action, but she's got Yahweh God behind the scenes, knowing full well that it's, remember, it's God is the antecedent to the one who has not left uh, the blessing out from those who live and those who die. As she says it there, she knows full well that the Lord God is doing this. May he be blessed of the Lord whose kindness. Whose kindness? God's kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. So Yahweh has offered covenant grace to this family. By Boaz extending grace to the remaining ones among those who have died, he is in effect showing kindness to the dead. In Naomi's eyes, Ruth's coming to the field of Boaz was a demonstration of God's grace and favor. Notice what Naomi says. The man is a close relative of ours and one of our goelim. Well, we are used to the word goel, but goelim would be among the redeemers. He's one of the ones that can redeem you. Remember, if I could even have sons... In my womb. Would you wait for one of them to grow old enough to marry? You need to return back to Moab. But now Naomi's saying, Wow, this guy's not only a relative, but he's a redeemer. With this word, Naomi has raised another one of the most important notions in the book, and we're going to talk about that more next week. But it means kinsman redeemer. Naomi's wheels, of course, are spinning. The sun is beginning to beam down upon Naomi's life. There is, in fact, a potential kinsman redeemer. God is at work. Now, Ruth gives one more bit of info. Uh, It's kind of like an aside. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good. Oh, Ruth says, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men. And I can almost think in my mind that Naomi, reading between the lines, here's Naomi's response. I like Boaz's advice. Right? Just stick to that kind of advice. And of course, she still got that mother-in-law instinct of trying to take care of, her, of Ruth. Because no question about it, she was vulnerable. And she reminds her to stay close. And again, in verse 23, this is an exclamation point. And the reason so, if God wants you to know, as bad as it looked at the beginning of the book, God is at work in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. It is an awesome picture. Now, does God give us the Old Testament just... For a heartwarming story? No, you'll find in Romans 15.4 that what was given to us in the Old Testament was given for our example and our instruction. So we have to look at this and we have to say what is it that God would have us think about when we, when we witness the abundant grace of God at work. And when we see from the scripture uh, the celebration of how Ruth and Naomi are responding to the grace of God, what does it say to us? I want to end this sermon by giving you some lessons on grace. Three of them. They're in your outline. First, God's purposes with his people are always gracious. Is this hard to see when you're going through difficulties? 
This means yes. This means no. Talk to me, congregation. Is it? Is it? Are there times when you interpret the providence of God wrongly? And you begin to think that his providence actually equivocates to his disposition toward you. That's never the case with a child of God. God, his purposes with his people are always gracious. Even when he disciplines you, right? Uh, Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves. Aren't you thankful that the verse says that? Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He chastens and scourges every one of them. And if you don't receive chastisement, you're an illegitimate child. So even in the discipline, his disposition toward you is not one of an angry God against his people. It was God who was supplying things for Ruth. God is the one guiding Ruth. God is the one giving super abundant grace to Ruth and Boaz. God is at working. God is working. And he's extending extraordinary grace and mercy right through Boaz. Now... As a people of God, would you recognize that how God is working in your very life is gracious? And he is gracious. We sometimes, again, interpret that God's disposition toward us is bad or wrong or angry because of the providence that we're going through. We take from this that God is angry. God, you must be upset with me. You must be angry with me for me to lose a husband and two sons and be stuck in a land down in Moab with nothing, husbandless and penniless. And yet God was working out his gracious plan in Ruth and Naomi's lives. The Bible says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now the question is, do we believe that or not? If you do then God's purposes for your, his people are always gracious, even when they contain fatherly discipline, even when they're dark and frowning providences, hard providences that you are enduring, or let me say it this way, or that you may have endured in the past is not from an angry God trying to sh- shatter your life and break you and rattle you. It is the Lord God being gracious to you. Why? He's working out his plan in your life. Now, that may not be popular theology because we want to believe that we want to exonerate God from anything that happens in our lives that's difficult or bad or hard or wrong. But, folks, you've got a major problem with that if you're a Bible student because there's only one God and he's he's in control of all things. There's not this cosmic warfare going on between Satan and God and they're punching each other and in the end one of them's going to win out. No, folks, that's not right. That's stinky theology. That doesn't fit the word of God. God has all things in control. And he's even got the enemy on a leash. And it's not going to be long before he pops his neck. It's coming. It's coming. It's in the word of God. He's in control of all things. So you've got real bad theology. If you don't see that almighty God controls the times and the seasons. And and the epics and the boundaries. I just read it to you out of Acts chapter 17. Correct? God is in control. So with that said. Don't you think God can deliver? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Folks, can God deliver on that? (laughs) Yes, he can deliver on that. So therefore, his work in your life is always gracious. I didn't say it was going to be easy. We know that. All we got to do is think about the coronavirus. 
Are y'all tired of that thing yet? <laughs> oh. But God had a purpose in it. Some of you have witnessed that in your own family life. God has a purpose. All right, number two. If you are a recipient of God's grace, then you have been fully accepted by God through Jesus Christ. I heard an amen. You know, the Bible says that Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Do you know how rich that verse is? Do you know that that should just speak to your heart? In John 1, it says that, that Moses gave us the law, but Jesus Christ gave us grace. And then it says grace upon grace. Well, scholars have debated that. Does that, mean, does that just mean blessing after blessing? No, there's a little more to it. It really means grace instead of grace. In other words, there was grace in the law. But the only grace in the law was to point you to Jesus. Right? You were a sinner. The law that Moses gave does that. However, when it says instead of grace, it's telling you that the fuller revelation of grace is Jesus Christ. In other words, you don't need anything else. He is completely sufficient to do everything that God intended when it comes to grace. As a matter of fact, you can't be saved apart from Jesus and saving grace. So Boaz brought Ruth into the inner circle. You dip your bread in the same cup that I will dip my bread into. Just as Boaz accepted Ruth into the inner circle of fellowship, so God through Christ Jesus has accepted you. Now I know this is Baptist lingo. But we always like to talk. And I'm, not, I'm trying not to be hard. I just want you to think, okay? We like to use this terminology, I have accepted Christ. As if God is the one that needs the help. Right? That's not good terminology starting off, okay? I, I get where we're coming from and I understand that. But folks, God's not the one who needs your help. He's not the one that can be served by human hands. So when we use the word accept, I want you to understand that first it comes down to God accepting you through Christ. That's the real issue here. He's the one who's God and sovereign and holy and mighty. So the good terminology would be, I have been accepted in Christ, right? I'm accepted before God because of Jesus Christ. That's the big issue. We were the ones with the problem. The gospel is not a help-wanted sign on the window of the door of heaven. The gospel is a sign on the window of heaven that says, I help sinners, right? It's what God does for us. And that's why uh, if, if you think your salvation is about you, then you've never come to really humbly be like Ruth. Look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 10. Why have I found grace in your sight? That ought to be your living testimony. It ought to be your testimony. God, why did I find grace? Why did you save my soul? So, the issue is, God has God in Christ accepted me? Listen to Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. You can turn there if you want to, or you can listen. I've, I wrote it down. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. I want you to hear the accepted part, blessed part. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us or accepted us in the beloved. Don't you understand how awesome it is? If you're a recipient of grace, that means you've been accepted by God through Jesus Christ. And you did so by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. Isn't it a wonderful thing? 
that your acceptance before God doesn't depend on how fast you run or how hard you work. That's not your, your acceptability before God does not depend upon those things. I'm so thankful that my acceptance before God doesn't depend upon my performance. It doesn't. My acceptance before God depends solely on the blood and merit of Jesus Christ. Folks, that's the gospel. And let me add, that's all it takes. And the only way you can be accepted before God is not works, not church fathers, not additional things, not sacraments, not bloodless mass. None of those things can make you accepted before God. Period. There's only one way Jesus didn't come down from heaven to die for Americans because they were basically good. Folks, do you think about why Jesus came to earth? Paul would say there's no need for grace if you can be saved through the law. There was no reason for, for the God of grace to come down if we can be saved through the law. I want you to understand that I'll preach it till, I, till my toes are stuck up in the tomb. There is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Period. You have to preach it. Why? Because I'm going to stand before the king one day and give an account. And I'm going to say, Lord, I did exactly what this book says. Live, die, sink, or swim. Get fired, get run off, doesn't matter to me. What does matter to me is this book. And I'm going to preach the exclusivity of Christ until I die. There's only one way to heaven. Period. It's not Jesus minus, Jesus plus. It's Jesus only. It's the only way to be saved. There's only one way you can be accepted in the beloved. Notice that text. Did y'all read Ephesians 1, 4 through 16? You've been accepted in the beloved because of Jesus. There's no other way to be accepted. Only through Jesus. And finally, now I'm not Jim Baker. And I'm not Kenneth Copeland or Kenneth Hagen or Jimmy Swaggart. But I do want to give you this point because it's true. It is God's desire to serve his people by grace. Now, that doesn't mean that you name it and claim it. It doesn't mean that God is a heavenly slot machine and you just, as long as you hit it straight, put in the right change, you're going to be blessed. That's, that's not what's going on here. But we do learn that God serves his people by grace. Does he not? Can't tell you how many times I went to the mailbox in seminary. Not sure we could stay there. And some old wonderful saint of God or somebody who were touched by Christ, who was living in the orbit of grace, that said, hey, you know what? That, that young preacher boy might need some help. I can, I can tell you story after story after story of the sovereign providential grace of God at work in the lives of his people. He does it. It's God's desire to serve his people by grace. Boaz brought Ruth in and he served her. God works on behalf of those who trust him. Listen. If you seek refuge under his wings and that's where you end up, then you better get ready because God's going to bless you. Not, not like Benny Hinnism, okay? We're talking about the spiritual blessings that are in heavenly places primarily, right? Not, not treasures on earth that you pile up, but what's coming in the future. But do you understand that he works for us and in us by his grace? Here's the quintessential text, Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who, will not, he who did not spare his only son, 
but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with all things in him graciously give us all things? There it is. He serves his people by grace. Who shall bring any charge, the Bible says, against God's elect? Who is it that will condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Don't you love this? This is grace. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Folks, that's grace. Graciously giving us all things. The work that we do for him today is not a wage. It's because he is working in us. Philippians 2, the women studied this. Uh, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. We're like, whoa, that's a work-based salvation, right? Let your salvation work out of you. Why? Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You see concurrence going on? It's all about the will of God, working it out in, your, in his people, even your own sanctification. Please remember this verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. His grace in us results in the greatest satisfaction we could ever know. When we come in contact with the grace of God in Christ, our souls are satisfied. Just like Ruth's, more so. In Jesus, ultimate satisfaction. I mean, just think about this. He's the bread from heaven. When he comes down, you won't hunger anymore. He is the, the Bible calls him the water of life. The woman at the well said, give me this water that I can drink it. But we're reminded by Christ that this water will become in you a well springing up into everlasting life. In other words, when you're satisfied in Jesus, you don't even need anything to drink. Spiritually speaking, there is nothing else to drink, right? So he's the living water. And you can turn right around if you've experienced this grace and you can tell someone else, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? Taste and see that he is good. So we realize that he becomes in us a well of water springing up into everlasting life. There is an ultimate satisfaction when we taste the grace of God. And our acceptance before him in Jesus Christ. This is just grace upon grace. Now how, I would not be a preacher of the word if I didn't give you this. But at the end, my question to you is, how are you accepted into the family of God? How do you know that God will work on your behalf and supply your every need? How can you experience the satisfaction that only Jesus Christ can give? You do it through faith. As you humbly before Almighty God, the living God, bow before Him and His finished work, the cross of Christ, and acknowledge Him as Savior and Lord. It takes a humble person, right? It takes a humble person to let go of self-righteousness. Think about this in your own life. It takes a humble person to let go of self-righteousness and sin and the things that bind us to this world. You can't be saved without submission. You can't be saved without humility. And our prayer should be, Dear Father, I let it go and I realize that Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, I trust you for forgiveness of sins. I repent and turn from. I move from a position of unbelief to a position of belief. Right? And I realize that it is God that is working in you for this to take place. I get that. But still, it is a movement of faith from 
no faith, unbelief, to a place of faith and belief in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus, as my all-sufficient treasure, I cling only to you. Remember, I explained the gospel in one of the first sermons. When it says, Naomi, when it says that Ruth cleaved to Naomi, here's the gospel. I cleave to Jesus Christ. Right? That is the gospel. That is you. That is salvation, should I say. Not the gospel, but salvation. You cling to him. So, Father, there's nothing I have to offer you that can contribute to my righteousness. There's nothing I have to offer that can contribute to my salvation. I throw myself upon your mercy and I ask Jesus for Jesus' sake. And his finished work on Calvary. Forgive me and save me. God saves you for the sake of Christ. That's why you're saved if you're saved. For many of us, God has brought you to that place where you saw your sin. And you saw how lovely Christ is. And the ending of this message is for you. We need to have gratitude to God for our salvation, right? It's so easy for us to look at the gift and forget the giver. Don't ever forget the giver of grace. Don't forget the one who saved you, who purchased you. Let us not forget the giver of salvation and grace. I think the best way to respond to grace is not to forget the giver. Don't forget where salvation comes from. We should bless and praise the God of heaven for grace. And we ought to tell others of the marvelous grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we again want to thank you for the word. God, thank you for working providentially in the lives of your people. Lord, thank you so much for amazing saving grace. No wonder, it is no wonder John Newton wrote that classic, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Lord, it is your law that reminds us of our wretchedness. And it points us to the fact that we need Jesus Christ. We need his grace. Grace upon grace. Uh, the fuller understanding and revelation of grace. The grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5, and 6. That's how we're saved. By the washing of regeneration. If there's someone under the sound of my voice that's lost, would you work your work of grace in their hearts? And may they respond to you by faith. Trust Jesus only for salvation. And that, Father, for Christians, please help us never to forget the giver of our salvation. We extol you, uh, we extol and praise and glorify you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The Bible reminds us that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as last, as a, just like last week, as I leave out, I'll be in the North Fellowship Hall. If God has worked in your heart in any kind of way and you say, well, I need to stop by and talk to the pastor about this, I will be out there. God bless you. Let's pray that uh, our country will be healthy. And that we can relinquish the six-foot rule by June. And at the same time, people feel safe, right? Let's pray that the Lord God will do that. God bless you. And let me just remind you just to, to try to stay safe as we go out. The ushers will let you out uh, from the back row uh, out. And so just wait for the usher to come to your row before you leave, please. Offering plates are out there if you want to give that way. If you have a connection card that you filled out, you want to give that, please put that in the offering plate. God bless. We hope you have an awesome week.